The day I encountered uh, Jesus Christ was when I was seven years old. I uh, have told many of you this before, but I grew up as a pastor's kid, so every Sunday I got to listen to my dad preach on Sunday mornings, but more significant than hearing my dad preach was what would happen every night. He would uh, come into my room and uh, he would share a story about how when he grew up on the farm and as a young boy, I just loved hearing my dad talk about his, you know, his dogs and his horses and what life like was like on the farm there. So I look forward to that uh, every night. But like I said, one day when I was seven, uh, something different kind of happened. I've never been able to really explain how I knew. I just knew. But when my dad walked into the room that night, he asked me if I was ready. And uh, for some reason, like I said, I don't know, I knew he wasn't talking about was I ready to hear another story about the farm. I knew what he was asking me was a heart question, which is, was I ready to encounter Christ for myself, to receive him as my own personal savior from my sin and from death? And so that night, my dad and I prayed and I invited Christ into my life. Now, of course, it's been a journey uh, since then, learning to follow him daily, but I will always remember and be thankful for my dad's willingness to invite me to come and see Christ for myself. Now, the reason I share that is because as we continue our series, as you can tell, called Encountering Christ, where as a church we're walking through the Gospel of John this year uh, to basically see how Jesus had different encounters with people and what we can learn from their encounters. This morning we have the chance to look at Jesus' encounter with his first five disciples. In fact, we're going to discover uh, this morning is that they too, like me, were invited to come and see Christ for themselves. And they had the decision to make, will I follow him? And so like many of you, including me, the truth is, if you're on your notes with me this morning, here's what we're going to learn. The Lord often uses others to invite us to encounter Christ. The Lord often uses others to invite us to encounter Christ. Christ. Some of you can think of some of the important people in your life who led you there. Now we're going to see that with these first five disciples. So take your Bibles and turn them to John chapter 1. We're starting in verse 35 uh, this morning. It's about four-fifths of the way if you're using your own Bible. Uh, back, it's the fourth gospel. If you're not using your own Bible, we always invite you to pull one of the red Bibles in the seat in front of you there, and you can turn to somewhere around page 700 or 800. Learn this week, we actually have three red Bibles circulating, so I can't give you a direct page number anymore, but about uh, that area, and I'd love it if you follow along. Now, before we actually look at the text, we've got to talk a little bit about some context, because this won't make a whole lot of sense to us in 21st century America. One of the things we often forget about Jesus and the identities he had, and did we learn about some of his identities last week? If you were here, we learned about how he was the Lamb of God. We learned about how he was the one who existed before time, how he was the Messiah, indeed the one they were waiting for, and that he was God himself. But one of the things we often forget is that Jesus was also a rabbi. A rabbi was just a teacher, and what would happen is in the first century when this took place, there were all kinds of rabbis. Some of them would stay in the area of Jerusalem. They would teach around the temple, but there were other rabbis who would travel all throughout Israel, and they would go speak in the synagogues around the different cities, or they would just speak wherever they could find an audience. And what made each rabbi unique was their interpretation of the Torah. 
the law. God had given the people the law. And so each rabbi had a kind of a different interpretation of what the law meant. So they would go and teach their interpretation. And I just want to say, if we forget that Jesus was a rabbi, we lose so much of the Gospels, of his teaching and his ministry and what's going on there. Now, the reason I'm telling you about that for our passage this morning is because one of the highest priorities for any rabbi was the handpicking of his students. The handpicking of his students. Rabbis always had students. They were called Talmud or disciples. Now, typically, here's how it worked. A student, a potential student, would approach a rabbi and they would ask them a question. May I follow you? And the rabbi might ask them uh, some different questions in return and decide if this student was worthy of, of him allowing them to follow him as one of his disciples. We know, for example, later in the New Testament, this was a big deal uh, for these kids to be able to follow a rabbi. We know from the New Testament when Paul, you know, whenever you read Paul and he's sharing his testimony with a Jewish audience, have you noticed how he loves to bring up the fact that he studied under Rabbi Gamaliel? I mean, that was a very prestigious thing. So when Paul telling his testimony and he says that, everybody would have gone, oh, he studied at Harvard, similar to our university system today. Now, Pastor Brian would say, oh, he studied at Carthage, which is where he went to school. Uh, I'm not so sure about that. It was a prestigious honor. Listen, it was a prestigious honor to be allowed to follow a rabbi. And so if you're following on your notes this morning as a rabbi, as a rabbi, Jesus would have had disciples. Jesus would have had disciples. But you know what makes Jesus different from every other rabbi? He didn't wait for students to come and ask him, can I follow you? He sought them out. He invited his disciples to follow him as their rabbi. And he does the same for us Today. So with that in mind, hopefully what we're about to read will make a whole lot more sense to us. Let's start by looking at how the first two disciples came to follow Jesus. Verse 35 of chapter 1. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. Now, John refers to John the Baptist. And look, apparently he is a rabbi as well. Apparently, John the Baptist was a rabbi. And we know from a couple of verses later that two of these disciples, one of them is Andrew. We're not given the name of the other disciple, but almost everybody agrees that it would have been John himself. Not John the Baptist, but John, the author of this letter. If you were here two weeks ago when uh, Jeff introduced this series, remember how he talked about, and you've probably noticed this if you've ever read through the Gospel of John, John never refers to himself. He always is like ambiguous about himself. He might refer to him as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And so most people think the reason the other disciple isn't named here because it's John, once again, taking this humble approach uh, to his following of Christ. In fact, even later on, you'll notice whoever's writing this, John is writing this, he notes the exact hour they entered into Jesus' house. Now, who would remember a detail like that? Except for somebody who probably experienced it and remembered it for the rest of their lives. So look at verse 36. When he, John the Baptist, saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. Does that sound familiar if you were here last week? Here's John again, pointing away from himself towards Christ. I love the banners up here. Jerissa has done an awesome job of painting some of those things. But you see the top one there. There's John doing what he does all the time, right? Pointing. Look. Don't look here. Look over there. The Lamb of God. 
He knows his role. Well, let's see what happens. Verse 37. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Let's everybody say, ah, right? I mean, that's sad. They're... Their rabbi is John the Baptist, and they're going to follow Jesus now. I mean, what's the deal there? Why is John telling them? Well, that's exactly what he wanted them to do, right? He doesn't have a sense of betrayal or how could you guys leave me? This is what his whole life was about. He celebrated the fact that these two disciples left to follow Jesus. In fact, if you're following, John pointed others to Jesus and lost two disciples in the process. But he could care less. Why? Because that was his job. That was his life. That was his greatest joy and passion. I don't know about you, but I have still been thinking a lot about John from last week, and I continue to marvel. I mean, think about this. This guy was at the top of his game, right? He was the guy people were coming to see, and yet he willingly starts taking second place here. We don't do that well today. I mean, you think about all the celebrities or the athletes or the bands that just try to hold on to the spotlight for just a little longer. I don't want to step out of first place. I still want to be known and seen as important, but not John. doesn't want anything to do with himself let's continue let's read verse 38 out loud the first part of it on our notes there it says jesus turned and saw them following and said to them what are you seeking first words jesus speaks in the gospel of john what are you seeking those are some profound words aren't they what are you looking for what do you want out of life why are you looking at me Do you really have any idea what I'm about? Do you know what it's going to mean to follow me? Friends, have you ever asked yourself that fundamental question? What am I seeking? What do I really want out of life? What does it mean for me to really follow Jesus Christ? Those are the crucial questions of our lives. They will determine the way we live. They will determine the way we die. For many people, sadly, however... Life is just this cycle of climbing out of bed, eating breakfast, going to work, coming home in the evening, having dinner, reading the paper, watching TV, going to bed, waiting for the next vacation, and on and on and on. I mean, why are we so content to live our lives that way? Is that all I'm seeking? Is that all I want out of life? Well, like many today, I love this. John and Andrew don't know the answer to that question. They don't know what they're seeking. So instead of answering, this is great, they ask Jesus a question in return. Just note the cautious question here, verse 38. They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? We're not ready to answer that. We're not ready to go all in with you, that's for sure. But I am interested in learning more about you and investigating So will you let us come and follow you for a little while and we can maybe test the waters here. And look what Jesus says. Come and you will see. Come and see. Come and see. Those are words of someone who is open to investigation, right? Jesus welcomes the seeker, the inquirer, the one who hungers to know more, the one who is asking the question, what am I seeking? And he invites us and says, come and see. Come and see if it's me. If you're following, Jesus invites them to investigate. 
Here's the key. Without pushing. He invites them to investigate without pushing. You must make your decision now. No. Come and see. Come and see. I I know a lot of people like John and Andrew, don't you? People who have open minds, they're willing to learn more about Christ. They're asking the question, right? I don't know what I'm seeking. I want to ask that question, though. I want to ask the questions of life. And they need time to investigate. They need time to ask questions and to make up their mind. But if they become convinced, I've met enough of these people, when they become convinced that Jesus is the answer to the question, they commit themselves fully. And I respect that. Don't just make a a decision based on not enough information. I believe we should be giving people the time to investigate and ask questions. Give them freedom. It's the way Jesus did it. And we can do it too. The rest of verse 39 says, So they went and saw where he was staying and spent that day with him. It was about the tenth hour. There's a few conversations that are not recorded in the Bible that I sure wish were. The one with Jesus and the disciples walking down the road to the Emmaus, you know, on the, after the resurrection where Jesus opens up the scriptures. Oh, I wish, I wish we had a manuscript of that. I'd also like to know what Jesus talked about with Andrew and John here, wouldn't you? Unfortunately, we don't know. They had a few hours together, but whatever they talked about must have been tremendously exciting and life-changing because look at verse 40. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard that John had said and who had followed Jesus. What John had said, excuse me, and who had followed Jesus. Now read verses 41 and 42 out loud with me on your notes. It says, the first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is the Christ, and he brought him to Jesus. Just a few hours. That's all he needed. You know, I'd like to do a series in our church someday called The Unsung Heroes of the Bible, where we would look at people uh, in Scripture that don't get a whole lot of publicity, but their impact just can't be denied. Andrew is one of those heroes for me. You know, we don't actually possess a lot of information about Andrew, but the little that we do possess perfectly paints his character. You see, the first thing we know about Andrew is that he is always introducing others to Jesus. It's like his thing. There are only three times, in fact, we'll, we'll see them all throughout the Gospel of John. Only three times Andrew is brought to the center stage in the Gospel story. There's this incident here where he's unable to contain his excitement. I've spent a few hours with this guy. It's it. This is it. i got to go tell my brother. It's like natural. i got to, Peter, come on. i got to show you this guy I met. He answers the question of what I'm seeking. Then there's a story in John 6, which we'll get to, where Jesus feeds the 5,000. You remember what he has the disciples do? He's like, you go feed them. And they're freaking out. Andrew, though, is the one who brings the little boy with the two fish and the two loaves, and he introduces him to Jesus. And because of that, the miracle occurs. And then in John 12, there are some Greeks who want to really meet Jesus. But they can't get into the inner circle. But who is it that brings them to meet him? It's Andrew. You're on your notes. It was Andrew's joy to bring others to meet Jesus. It was his joy to bring others to meet Jesus. All it took was one afternoon, apparently, in his presence for him to decide, this is what I'm seeking. I have found the answers in Christ. And he spent the rest of his life introducing others to him. 
Andrew could not keep Jesus to himself. Now, the second thing we learn about Andrew is like John the Baptist, who was his rabbi, so I think he probably learned this from him, is that Andrew willingly took second place. Specifically, who did he take second place to? His brother, Peter. As little as we know about Andrew, we know a whole lot more about Peter, don't we? Peter was invited to be one of those three core disciples of Jesus. Peter was the one Jesus looked at and said, upon you, I will build my church. Now, if I'm Andrew, I'm going, that's not fair. I knew him first. But there was none of that spirit or attitude in Andrew. He was just happy to introduce others to Jesus. Do you know people like Andrew, by the way? Do you think of any Andrews in your life? I know some people in our church who are Andrews. I'm not going to embarrass them by naming their names, but if you've been coming to our church and you've ever felt like this church has a spirit of like welcome, we feel like a family here, it's because of Andrews. It's because of these people who get their joy and their delight from welcoming people and inviting them to seek Christ. Come and see. I don't know where we would be without Andrews. We'll come back to that some year, I promise. But let's continue in verse 42. Jesus looked at him, Peter, talking to Peter now, and said, You are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter. If you're an underliner, here would be another opportunity for you. Underline those words looked at. This isn't like Jesus looked at him on the surface and said, Oh, there's Peter. No, he looked at his heart. It's that kind of gaze. Have you ever experienced that when someone's looking at you and you know they're not just looking at you, they're like looking in you? Every once in a while, somebody will come up to me after a message and say, were you looking at me that whole time? I've I've experienced that. I've been there. You know, I can be reading the Bible and all of a sudden it's like, I think you're wanting me to get something here, Lord. You're looking right at me. Or I've been sitting in church myself going, "I, I know it. I knew if I'd come today, he'd speak right at me. I can honestly say I have never done that. So what's going on there? What's going on is that Jesus still looks into our hearts today, doesn't he? He's not into the surface thing. He wants to penetrate our lives. The Holy Spirit, when we allow him to, will still look deeply within us. And the thing I love about these looks, I don't know if you've experienced it, but if you've experienced it, here's the thing I love about these looks. They're never looks of despair. It's never, you're a failure or you're hopeless. They are always looks of, I want to bring something better out of you. There is something better in store for you. When Jesus looked at people, he never saw them for who they were. He always saw them for who they could become. Right? Jesus looked at Peter. said, you're you're Simon, you're a rough Galilean fisherman. But I see something you can become. You can become the rock, Peter, upon which I build my church. It's the same thing for you today. Hear me. Jesus doesn't see us as I sometimes see myself or as you sometimes see yourself or as others see us, right? He doesn't look at me and say, failure, addict, fat, ugly, helpless. He sees you for who you can be. If you're following, Jesus sees us not for who we are, but for who we can become. You are no longer Simon. You are Peter. You are no longer helpless. You are no longer unloved. You are my child. 
the story of somebody asked Michelangelo, the famous sculptor one time, he's like, how do you get this blob of marble to turn into an angel? And Michelangelo answered the question by saying, it's because I see the angel in the marble and I carve until I set him free. That's how God sees us, friends. He doesn't see us who we are. He sees us for who we can become. Well, we're going to get a whole lot more of Peter in the weeks to come, aren't we? So let's uh, move on in our story and look at how the other two disciples come and follow Jesus in this section. Look at verse 43. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Important for me to note here that Jesus found Philip. Philip didn't find Jesus, didn't ask him, may I follow you? Jesus found Philip. Sometimes Philip is described as, you know, a real shy, withdrawn type of person. Don't know a whole lot about him either. But Jesus found him, and he invited him to follow him. This is revolutionary for a rabbi, right? He doesn't wait for the best and the brightest to come and ask, may I follow you? He seeks out his disciples. Some believe that these disciples that Jesus chose had already lost their opportunity to follow a rabbi. So this is like their second chance, like, follow me. And he's doing the same thing today. Aren't you glad he doesn't seek out always the best and the brightest? He seeks out people like me and you. Philip apparently allows without hesit- follows him without hesitation. And look what he does, just like Andrew. He's like, what's the next natural thing? Well, I'm going to go invite someone else to come and meet him. Verse 45, Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And this is great. I love, I love Nathanael. Nazareth? <laughs> Can anything good come from there? Come and see, said Philip. Nathanael also named Bartholomew. You know any of those? Skeptical, but honest. They're not just going to follow someone without proof or evidence. He knows the scriptures. In fact, most people believe, you know what he was doing at the time when Philip came and got him? He's sitting under that tree. You can see uh, the picture again that Jerissa drew. There, There he is. Philip's inviting him. But most believe he was actually studying the scriptures like he would do probably every day. Devout Jewish men would do. Sit under the tree and read God's word. So he was waiting. He knew his stuff and he knew Nazareth. I don't read anything about that. In fact, Nazareth is like this town, this little tiny town known to have a bad reputation. It was located right near a Roman garrison. So it was so full of like sin and debauchery. It'd be like me telling you, I found Messiah. He's from Vegas. Let's go. At this point, you would expect Philip to pull out the scriptures himself, right? He's sitting at the trees like, let's go. I'm going to prove to you why you're an idiot. With my superior knowledge, I will convince you to come and follow Christ. Let's debate. But he doesn't. If you're following, Philip doesn't argue. He just invites Nathaniel to come and see for himself. Smart guy. It's a good word for us today, right? I don't know anybody who's ever been argued into the kingdom of God. 
Now, I'm not saying, listen, I'm not saying it's not important that we understand the reasons why we believe what we believe. And when the opportunities arise and the questions come from people, that we can share that with them. But I am saying if we come across with this superior added, like, attitude, like I know everything and you know nothing, we're going to move people further away from Christ than towards them. I experienced this in high school. I had my best friend was a Christian, but we had other friends who didn't follow Christ. And so we would, obviously, that was a big uh, Big opportunity for us. We'd invite them to youth group and stuff. But my best friend's approach was, I will argue you into the kingdom of God. And so we would sit at these lunches, and he would just, like, go at him, Like, here's why we're smarter than you. Here's why you're dumb for not believing that. I mean, it was just over and over again. And I'm watching the body language of my non-Christian friends going, oh, please, God. They're just mocking him now. Now, he viewed that as martyring, like I'm being martyred for the sake of the gospel. I just viewed it as you're moving them further away from the kingdom of Christ. The best way to convince people of the supremacy of Christ is simply to show them, come and see. Let's not debate. Just come and see for yourself. And we do that best by the way we live. Apparently, Nathaniel is open to this suggestion because look at verse 47. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, Here is a true Israelite in whom there is nothing false. Once again, Jesus pierces the surface, looks straight into Nathanael's heart. He basically says, Here is a man of integrity. Verse 48, How do you know me? Nathanael asked. He's surprised, of course. Like, we've never met. How do you know who I am? And Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you again what's nathaniel doing under the fig tree do we think probably studying scriptures most people believe he was asking the question what am i seeking i'm seeking the messiah i am waiting anxiously for his coming so no wonder he's skeptical right he knows his stuff nazareth come on but he's willing to come and when jesus offers like this tiny measure of supernatural evidence i know you and i saw you Look at his response in verse 49. It's like the fastest conversion in human history. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. That's all it took. He was so ready to receive this truth, right? He'd been asking the question, what am I seeking? I'm seeking the truth. And when it's revealed to him, boom, he's ready. He gives his life to follow Christ. When Jesus removes this legitimate obstacle, this whole Nazareth thing, Nathaniel believes at once. Now, we're going to discover in our series in John, that's not true for most people, is it? Jesus can do some of the most incredible, supernatural acts of power, and people will still refuse to believe. But not Nathaniel. And then with this profession of faith, Jesus reveals something incredible to Nathaniel here. Look at verses 50 and 51. It says, Jesus said, you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You shall see greater things than that. He then added, I tell you the truth, you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, Jesus knows Nathaniel is a student of Scripture. And so he makes this reference here to Genesis chapter 28. In Genesis 28, verse 12, we're told that Jacob, one of the fathers of Israel, has a dream. You remember this? He has a dream about a ladder connecting heaven and earth where the angels are descending and ascending between the two realms. And so what Jesus is saying to this true Israelite, to the student of Scripture, he's saying, I'm the ladder. 
I am the fulfillment of that ladder. You want to know why I came? You're going to get to see it. I came to bridge the chasm between heaven and earth. And there will be a time when you will see that actually take place. When is that time, friends? It is finished. He tells Nathaniel, you're going to see that moment when I bridge the realm of God the Father and humanity. If you're following, Jesus came to provide us full access to God. Jesus came to provide us full access to God. That's what he tells Nathaniel. I came to be the ladder that was once a dream will now be a reality. And friends, that's the message we bear as his disciples still today, right? Come and see. Come and see the one who bridged our greatest need, the gap between heaven and earth. You... You might not think about it here, but when Jesus starts his ministry, you know, he set about to change the world. It's a kind of an interesting strategy. He starts with a couple of Andrews and Phillips. His whole ministry, his whole strategy, Andrew and Philip, inviting others to come and see for themselves, who would invite others to come and see for themselves, who would invite others to come and see for themselves. How are we doing at this today? As his disciples. You know, I don't know about you, but this whole area of inviting others to encounter Christ, we sometimes call it evangelism. It becomes an area of fear and uncertainty for me. I struggle with what people might think if I talk too much about Jesus. Like, here we go, here's the Jesus freak. I struggle with getting out of my comfort zone. You know, it's so easy for us, isn't it, to have all our friends in the church? comfortable i struggle with not knowing all the answers to people's tough questions i struggle with guilt i don't do it enough god's going like this but does it have to be that way i mean does this inviting others to come and see jesus have to be as difficult and fearful as we make it as i look at this text i don't think so I think we make it a lot more complicated than we need to. In fact, I'd like to talk about three things I noticed from this text that can hopefully get us over this idea that sharing our faith, that inviting others to come and see Jesus has to be this big, scary thing. The first thing I noticed in these verses, I hope you did as well, is that, number one, we don't have to know all the answers. We don't have to know all the answers. In my conversations with people, I would say this is the number one fear we have about sharing our faith, isn't it? What if they ask me questions I can't answer? Right. No? You guys, you got it all down? Listen, I grew up in the church. I'm a pastor's kid. I went to seminary. Aren't you impressed? And I still don't know all the answers to people's questions. I never will know all the answers to people's questions, but let's all take a deep breath. I don't have to. That's not what God is expecting from us in this area. I mean, look at the example of Philip. Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Uh, Come and see. I think uh, what we've carried around for far too long in the church, when we think about sharing our faith, we walk around as little salesmen. Right? I mean, that's the image or the metaphor I think we use sometimes. I've got this product you need. And if I give you a good enough pitch... 
And you're going to want to buy it. And if you don't buy my product, then I failed as a salesman. Have you ever felt thoughts like that when it comes to evangelism? That's the wrong image, though. If you're on your notes, our job isn't to sell a product. We're not selling something. Our job, if you're on your notes there again, is to share our encounter. When the opportunity comes to share what Christ has done in my life, that's it. We're just coming alongside of people who are already in our path. We're going to talk about that already. And if they're open, telling them about the difference our encounter with Christ has made in our lives. I don't know all the answers. But what I do know is what he did for me. Do you know what he did for you? Could you share that with someone else like Philip and Andrew did? One of my favorite stories in regards to this is in John 9. We'll see this in several months from now or weeks. I don't know when it's coming. But there's a story of Jesus healing this man who was born blind. Now, that's a big deal. There had been healings of people who had turned blind, but this guy was born blind. Big deal. Of course, he did it on the Sabbath. So the Pharisees are all mad. And so they call this guy who's healed, and they interview him. This can't have happened. Who's this Jesus guy? What did he tell you? He tells them everything he knows. They send him out. They bring his parents in. His parents are afraid to answer any questions, so they send him out. They bring the guy back for a second time. And at this time, they're just mad with Jesus. So they bring him before the council, and they say, Give glory to God. We know this man, Jesus, is a sinner. And this young man replies with these words in John 9.25. Let's read them out loud on our notes here. It says, He replied, Whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. I can't answer all your questions. I don't know if he's a sinner. I don't know where he came from. What I do know is I was blind, and now I can see. Do you know what your encounter has meant for you? I know for me, I I was guilty. I was never good enough. But now I'm free. For others, I was never loved, but now I am adopted as his daughter, as his son. I don't know all your answers, but I do know what he means to me. My second observation from this text is when it comes to inviting others to come and see, there is not one right formula for inviting. There is not one right formula for inviting. We so wish it was, though, right? I'm going to train you. If you do step A, B, C, and D, the result will be... It doesn't work that way. In fact, I noticed... Every single person here encountered Christ in a different way, didn't they? There's no formula. For example, John and Andrew. How did John and Andrew come to know Christ? It was through the preaching of John the Baptist. Look, the Lamb of God. Does God still use preaching to bring people to an encounter with His Son today? Let me just assure you, in Ethiopia right now, there are some people who have entered into the kingdom of God because of the preaching of God's Word. Praise Him. And I'm just going to warn you, we will continue to preach the gospel of the kingdom of God here. But it's not a formula. In fact, I noticed the most effective approach from this text, at least, for someone coming and encountering Christ. It's not about inviting them to church, right? 
It's about a personal relationship with them. Research shows the most effective way from the first century, from the moment Andrew said, I've got to go find my bro, to today, is personal, one-on-one, sharing our lives with other people. People are going to be way more open from hearing from you and from me if I already have a relationship with them and they can trust me and respect me. I don't think Peter would have come if he didn't trust his brother. I definitely don't think Nathaniel would have come. I mean, Nazareth, give me a break. But because Philip invites him to come and see, he chooses to come. They invited and they, they were invited and their lives changed forever. Now, what does this look like for us today to be inviting kind of people? Maybe it does mean inviting to church. Uh, but like I said a couple weeks ago at the youth group, if some of you were there, if you're following on your notes, inviting for me begins with simply being aware, being aware of how God is already working. All I mean by that is just look at your life now. Where are your traffic patterns? Do you go to school? Do you go to work? Do you go to the same gym, to the same grocery store? Instead of seeing this as so much pressure, like, oh, I've got to slip Jesus in somehow, right? I'm out to coffee with her, like, hey, this coffee is great. It kind of reminds me of Jesus. <laughs> we hate that. It's not natural. They hate that. So what is natural? It's just looking for where God is already working. Being aware of how the Holy Spirit is already moving people. Nathaniel was ready. He was studying the scriptures. And Philip came at just the right time. i got to tell you, I wish I got this right more often, but there are times in my life when I can remember praying, Lord, help me to be in tune with your spirit in this situation right now. I don't pray that enough. But the times I've prayed, I can tell you, there are many opportunities where people will just out of the blue, of course it's not out of the blue, but because I made myself ready, we'll be like, hey, you're a pastor, right? I got a question about so-and-so-and-so. And I'm like, that's amazing. I didn't even have to force it. They just noticed something, and they asked me a question. They felt comfortable with that. It goes back to me, this whole idea. You're not a salesman. Yes, we want people to encounter Christ because it is life, eternal. But we don't force it, right? doesn't work for them and it doesn't work for us i don't know about you but i have yet to force someone to accept christ you will believe in fact that leads to our third and most important lesson for inviting others to come and see christ for themselves from this text it's this only christ only christ can ultimately pierce someone's heart you know that right not up to you it's true in every one of these examples all john could do was point the disciples to jesus he couldn't make the decision for them all andrew could do was run to his brother and invite him come and see we found messiah but he couldn't make the decision for him all philip could do was go to the tree and find his friend nathaniel and bring him to christ he couldn't make the decision for him they had to willingly choose to follow him can we just take a deep breath now and go that's right As much as I wish I could, I can't force someone to encounter Christ. I don't have that kind of power or authority. Truth is, I could be the best evangelist of all time. I could answer every single question they have. We could argue until the end of the age, and yet it's only when Christ looks into their heart and calls them to follow me. And they choose to. That they have entered into the kingdom. 
Now, for those of you who have encountered Christ, you know what I'm talking about right now, right? That moment in your life where you are asking the question, what am I seeking? What am I looking for? That's it. And like Nathaniel, we cry out, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Friends, this is good for us to remember, isn't it? If you're on your notes there, we're not the latter. We're not the latter. You know what I'm talking about there, right? I can't get somebody on my back and go, I'm going to carry you up to heaven with me. We're just the messenger. We're just the messenger. Paul would say it this way in 1 Corinthians 3, 6. Let's read this out loud on the screen. It says, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. Are we planting? Are we watering? I sure hope so. But you can't make it grow. Only Christ can pierce someone's heart. Well, there's two questions that arise as we close this morning from this text, in my opinion. First, have I encountered Christ and chosen to follow him? Have I encountered Christ and chosen to follow him? That's the first and most important decision of your life. What are you seeking? Have you been asking that? What am I seeking, really? Is Jesus looking into your heart this morning and calling out to you, follow me, come and see? Have you come to the ladder ever? Have you come to the ladder that has bridged the gap between heaven and earth and received life eternal? Then choose to follow him. But listen, i got to tell you, if you're here and you're still seeking and investigating and inquiring, we want to be the kind of place that you feel welcome to do that. We want to be like Jesus who said, come and see. But I will warn you, we will continue to ask this question. The second question that arises from this text is for those of us who have accepted that, we are following him as his disciples today, and it's this, who can I invite to come and see Christ for themselves. Do you have anybody? Who is your Peter? i, I got to go tell him. Who's your Nathaniel? Are you just as excited as Andrew and Philip were to go get them and invite them? Come and see Jesus. If not, what's holding us back? Is it really as hard as we make it? I wonder, where would I be without my dad? 28 years ago, invited me to encounter Christ personally for myself. Who's that person in your life? You all have one. Maybe it's more than one. Somebody who brought you to the ladder. And you're grateful for them. I wonder, I wonder, is God asking you and me to do the same thing with somebody he's placed in our path today?